Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 29, and it's a personal account by John Kenny of his mission to Germany in 1914. I hope you like this and that you will share it with others on social media. And remember, you can become a patron of this podcast by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. In any event, continue to follow and like. John Kenny, 1847 to 1924, longtime member and multi-term president, 1883 and 1914, of the Clan Nagale, which supplied support to the volunteers in Ireland, culminating in the Easter Rising of 1916. He documented his missions in a series of articles in the Gaelic American newspaper as follows. Only John Devoy and Roger Casement knew of the plan. John Kenny agreed to undertake the mission, arranging for a passport to Switzerland with the benefit of his health given as the purpose of the trip. Armed with one small bag, credentials from the German embassy in Washington, two copies of the statement from the Klan, and several copies of the Gaelic American, Kenny set sail from New York on the 21st of August 1914 on board the SS Canopic, headed for Naples. The ship ran at night without lights for fear of German cruisers, compelling passengers and crew to go to bed in the dark. The waters surrounding the ship were filled with British warships. Low, dark and rakish, the ship abruptly changed course one night, due most likely to the presence of German ships. The trip was fraught with tension. The shipping lines had used the pretext of war as an excuse to raise the rates and lower the service. Steerage was packed, while first and second class were empty. The fare was poor, and they were subjected to continuous war reports. Keeping to himself, John Kenny passed the time observing the diverse population of both the crew and the passengers. As they approached Gibraltar, the tension mounted. There had been rumours that neutral ships had been boarded and searched by the British. The SS Canopic passed through Gibraltar unchallenged, but they were not yet safe. A British torpedo boat ran alongside for quite some time with a constant interchange of signals before finally veering off to John Kenny's immense relief. At daylight, September the 13th, 1914, they landed at Naples. All signs pointed to imminent war. The docks were piled high with military supplies and officials refused to let John Kenny or the seven other Americans off the ship. They had enough problems as it was, with American citizens who had been stranded penniless in Europe at the outbreak of the war, with no useless banknotes, without allowing any more Americans to enter. Disheartened by the prospect of early failure of the mission, John Kenny spent the night on board ship. The next day the Americans were allowed to land. After intense interrogation as to their plans, they were escorted to trains in order to go directly to the Swiss frontier. Safely out of British maritime jurisdiction, John Kenny sent the following letter to John Devoy using a fictitious name. 
Onboard SS Canopic, 10 a.m. September 14th, 1914. Dear friend, arrived Naples daybreak yesterday. Italians disembarked at once. Also our two American cardinals. Next, the Swiss reservists. Later, the other nationals were escorted to trains for respective destinations. Eight American citizens, of which I am one, detained on board overnight. Now about to be placed on train with order to proceed without break to Swiss frontier. Every sign of war. No foreigners wanted here. Seemed yesterday as if we might be returned, but we were saved by the representatives of American Consul, coupled with lack of accommodation for the hosts of American citizens awaiting passage. If possible, we'll stop off at Rome. We'll try return via southern France to Bordeaux or via Marseille to Barcelona, but developments might bring immediate and compulsory return or perhaps long detention. Italian papers report Germans 60 miles from Paris, also capture of 70,000 Russians on the Polish front. Ask MJ O'Shea to see about NTC meetings, and Matt Hartford save copies of GA, Gaelic American newspaper, John Devoy editor, with my articles on Frederick the Great and on John P. Holland. Sincerely, JK. Realising that his mission could be aborted before he reached Germany, John Kenny was determined to get a copy of the message to the German ambassador in Rome. The train stopped at Rome for a two-hour layover. Leaving his bag in the baggage check room, Kenny strolled out with the passengers from the next incoming train. After the last evening train had departed, he returned to collect his bag. He spent the next few days touring Rome, with a fellow passenger he had recognised from the SS Canopic, getting the lay of the land. On his fourth day in Rome, he made his move, strolling casually past the German embassy, with which he was by now familiar. He turned suddenly and went in the front gate. After handing an envelope with an endorsement on it to the official, he was quickly escorted into the embassy and after a wait of only minutes, was shown into a small study where the German ambassador, von Fluto, sat. The ambassador rose and partly crossed the room to greet him cordially. Von Fluto read the message from John Devoy and listened to what John Canny had to say. Von Fluto immediately brought up the subject of John Redmond's pledge of Ireland's support and loyalty to England during the war. Assuming he would have, at best, only a short interview with von Fluto, Kenny had come prepared with a succinct answer to this foreseen question. He gave von Fluto several examples from Irish history where the ostensible leaders were preaching reconciliation while the masses were planning rebellions. Von Fluto, well read in Irish history, saw his point. Kenny assured von Fluto that the Clan Gael and the IRB together formed a powerful enough force to sway the Irish towards armed rebellion when the opportunity presented itself. A few weeks later in Dublin, though, Tom Clark told John Kenny that actually we revolutionaries are only a handful. Van Fluto showed great interest when Kenny introduced Sir Roger Caseman's pet scheme, the establishment of Irish prisoners of war captured in the English service into the German service. He made notes continuously as Kenny spoke, questioning the loyalty of Irish soldiers enlisted in the British Army and why there were so many. 
On further reflection, however, von Fluto saw several problems with international law, for example. Nevertheless, von Fluto assured Kenny that all the points presented by the Irish leaders would be forwarded immediately. Both Roger Casement and John Devoy wanted John Kenny to meet personally with the Kaiser. Although Devoy did not hold up much hope that it could be arranged, reports put the Kaiser somewhere near the front, although his exact whereabouts were never revealed, presumably as security against aerial attack. John Devoy assumed that the Germans would prefer to take any messages to the Kaiser themselves. However, von Fluto offered to facilitate John Kenny's meeting, the Kaiser, by communicating directly with Berlin and by issuing him a special imperial pass. The pass would be recognized immediately by German officials. Yet, to the uninformed, it would appear to be simply a pass for ordinary state business. As John Kenny left, the ambassador accompanied him to the door, again assuring him that his messages would receive immediate and earnest attention. How much of the cordial reception accorded me, an unknown individual, was due to the ingrained natural politeness? How much to the commendable European custom of deference towards elders? Or how much to the importance which he, a German statesman, attached to the Irish alliance? I can only surmise, Kenny wrote. Both John Devoy and Roger Casement were very anxious that John Kenny should meet with the newly elected Pope Benedict XV. Friends of Monsignor Bran, a relative and close personal friend of Kenny, managed to get him an invitation to an important function at the Vatican, which he had to turn down for lack of appropriate clothes. Then they tried unsuccessfully to get him an audience with the Pope. The Pope, although in sympathy, with his calls, had to maintain the appearance of strict neutrality. Before leaving Rome, Kenny mailed the following letter to Devoy, again under a fictitious name and using the clan codewords at an agreed-upon address. Rome, September 2nd, 1914. My dear friend, stopped off here, okay, did not try to see representative of the big house till today, had long talk, Greatly impressed with our wares, and will see that they receive full and early consideration. Could not undertake from here to get interview with the head of the establishment, who is busy with some customers in the West, but will facilitate my getting there. I'm told that some other concerns are likely to join their trust, and some the competing trust. Mailed one of your orders from Naples, and several from this city, also one of Mr. C. Rogers. Scarcely possible to return through Switzerland and France as the theatre of war is westward bound. We'll try Switzerland, Tyrol, Bavaria, Rhineland to Rotterdam, or maybe try to cross to London, Dublin and Queenstown. Yours, JK. Leaving Rome, he headed north through Italy and Central Europe, passing over the Alps and through the San Gothard Tunnel to Zurich, crossing Lake Constance. He watched in vain for a glimpse of the trial flight of the Zeppelin over the nearby Zeppelin factory. In Lindau, Bavaria, he passed easily through customs, waiting until after he had passed through to show the Imperial Pass. In Switzerland, his travel was unhampered and unquestioned. In Berlin, John Kenny's meeting with the ex-Chancellor, Prince von Bulu, was relatively short. Everything of importance had been covered in the meeting in Rome with von Fluto. Von Belu 
surprised Kenny by letting slip some more information, which Kenny had supposed was top secret until the end of the interview, when Von Ballou mentioned that it was probably already known to the enemy, or soon would be. Nonetheless, Kenny found it interesting to know in advance that a great movement of troops and munitions was taking place from the French to the Russian frontier, and that the entrance of the other powers on either side was imminent. In response to a remark by John Kenny that the Irish had great hopes for the Zeppelin, for landing arms and maybe men in Ireland, Von Ballou explained that it was not feasible because of the difficulty of landing a Zeppelin in unprotected territory. He said that the Zeppelin could be used to bomb English garrisons in Ireland if they could be located. Kenny ventured to say that he thought this would be a risk to the Irish people. Von Ballou answered quickly, Of course not. England is the proper object of Zeppelin attack. Von Ballou inquired about the extent of military preparation in Ireland. Kenny was obliged to tell him that there were very few arms and little ammunition. However, he said, the Irish were born soldiers and the Irish volunteers had been well trained. And training, he pointed out, took time, whereas supplying arms was simply a matter of transport. Von Ballou tried to discourage Kenny from returning through Ireland when Kenny demurred, noting that he was an American citizen travelling on an American passport. Von Ballou shot back at him. Well then, don't go near his majesty, meaning the Kaiser, adding, it certainly would be hard to explain away an audience with him. It might mean the tower with unpleasant possibilities. Nonetheless, he suggested that if Kenny could stay longer, the chances of his seeing the Kaiser could be improved. Kenny replied that if Italy and Holland were drawn into the war, he would be hemmed in and without funds. Von Ballou counted that the matter of funds was not a problem. But John Kenny explained that the Clan Gael had made a condition of their request for German help that they would not ask for money. In hopes of meeting with the Kaiser, John Kenny set off on a zigzag path through Germany. At Dusseldorf, after showing the Imperial Pass, he was permitted to board a troop train, the only civilian, as far as he could see, who had done so. He was told that the train would follow whatever path circumstances allowed, with the destination termed vaguely as the front, or behind the lines. The train went as far as the frontier, but not quite to the front. About this time, Roger Casement later recalled that cablegrams appeared in New York papers, announcing that the Kaiser had arrived in the vicinity of the Crown Prince's headquarters, and that some great change had occurred in the plan of campaign, as indicated by the rumoured retirement of the Chief of Staff, following the retreat from the Marne. It transpired later that this was one of the most momentous periods of the war. Rumours were rife that Italy and Holland were being dragged into the conflict, and remembering the difficulties and delays at Gibraltar and Naples, and needing to avoid being hemmed in, Kenny reluctantly retraced his steps. Shortly after his return, he wrote in the Gaelic American. This part of my trip furnished me with an experience which I never in my life dreamed of having, and if I were to live for 1,000 years more, I would not have the opportunity of seeing again. Here I had been almost within sight and sound of the scene of what promises to be the most gigantic struggle which has marked the course of history. One is filled with dismay 
at the thought of the disastrous effect upon our civilization should the war be extended so as to involve still other nations. After a 10-day trip through the occupied parts of France and Belgium, John Kenny arrived at Rotterdam, the steamship for New York, had just sailed, sealing his decision to return home to New York via Dublin and Queenstown, after all. He mailed the following letter to his sister in Dublin. Rotterdam, Holland, September 12th, 1914. My dear Margaret, no doubt you will be surprised to learn that I am on my way from the Alps. My health is much improved, but conditions on the continent are not healthy enough to induce me to remain longer. Besides, funds are running low, so have your purse strings open when and if I reach the Talca. Your affectionate brother, John Kenny. In his typically understated way, he hinted at the hardships of his previous ten days in the following letter he sent to John Devoy, using the same fictitious address as before. Rotterdam, September 12, 1914. My dear friend, wrote you from Naples and Rome, and forwarded orders from those and other points. Saw representatives of Big House, who became greatly interested in the goods and will try to do business. Tried to see the head of establishment, but have not. This about summarizes contents of previous letters which may not have reached you. Visited Cologne Gazette and Frankfurter Zeitung. Germans seem confident. Rumor of a new arm. A great long-range gun designed to command the channel at Calais and probably reach the English coast. Popular belief that a new frontier will lie west of the Vosges mountain, reaching diagonally to channel. Did fairly well coming through. Train scarce, walking occasionally. Good, but I'm not so old and carry but little baggage and no antipodes. I have slept at the foot of the gum tree in Australia years ago. The foraging is very good, and that counts. Regards, JK. Wishing to preserve the Imperial Pass as a souvenir and historical document, Kenny successfully smuggled it through English customs, crossing the North Sea from Vlissingen to Folkestone, England. He was surprised to find little evidence of war in the Channel. No airships, battle cruisers, or destroyers. No doubt submarines, nets and submerged mines abounded. At Folkestone, all passengers were subjected to minute examination. Kenny wrote, London was dark at night. So were trains. People looked serious. At Holyhead, Wales and Dunleary, Ireland, American passengers were detained for a short while for examination. John Kenny had not planned on returning through Ireland, so he had received no instructions from John Devoy on informing Tom Clark of the mission. However, John Kenny knew well that Tom Clark was considered the hub of the secret movement in Ireland, and that Devoy would expect Kenny to inform him of the mission. He met several times with Tom Clark, Sean McDermott, and Patrick Pierce. Although John Kenny was not bothered by G-men, Tom Clark assured him that he was being followed. Ever since meeting with Clark and his friends, at one of the last conversations John Kenny had with Clark and McDermott, Clark told him, Our people have the Irish Volunteer Committee well in hand and will at once take drastic action with the parliamentary men on it. They will also raise a strong protest at the Asquith-Redmond meeting to be held in Dublin on Friday. Clark explained that the people who had believed that Redmond 
at the last moment would take a strong stand, and that was the great majority of the people were struck all of a heap. John Kenny ventured a suggestion, something he says he rarely did while there, and now was the time to give people the opportunity to take sides definitely. Ireland are the empire which Redmond and recruiting for England are reserving their manpower for Ireland. As John Kenny was about to visit Pierce at St. Enders to say goodbye, Clark asked him to give Pierce the gist of his conversation and ascertain Pierce's views about issuing a manifesto. Kenny did so and returned to Clark's shop to let him know that Pierce was in complete accord. Kenny believed that Clark was to reach Owen McNeil, James Connolly, and another leader that night. The next day, Kenny met for the last time before he left with Clark and McDermott at Wynn's Hotel. Kenny forgot if they had heard yet from McNeil and Connolly, but they had decided to carry out in its entirety the program outlined the day before, namely the expulsion of the Redmanites. The protest at the Asquith meeting and the issuance of the manifesto. Note, I am not sure if this happened on the first or the second trip. On his return to New York, John Kenny met again with Roger Casement, going to lunch in the same restaurant they had lunched at on the day of Kenny's departure six weeks earlier. Commenting on all that had happened in the intervening weeks and speculating on the possibilities of the near future, Casement was boyishly enthusiastic. According to Kenny, he appeared to have no foreboding of the tragic fate awaiting him as a consequence of his own mission to Europe, undertaken a few days later. John Kenny also met with Clan leaders Joe McGarity of Philadelphia and John A. McGarry of Chicago to inform them of the mission. Now the clan needed to get the money to finance the revolutionary plans over in Ireland. In early November 1914, John Devoy again approached John Kenny to make another trip, this time to bring money and the promise of more to Dublin and to bring back a full report of conditions there. This time, however, the British would be on the alert for him, having followed him on his previous stay in Dublin. John Kenny suggested that they arrived at some way for him to notify John Devoy and Tom Clark if he was detained. They could then arrange for a messenger to meet Kenny and take the money on to its destination in a note to the treasurer. Kenny wrote, Mr. Spellacy, if held up at Port of Landing, and it should appear to be indefinitely, I may wire, arrived. And then if I succeed in the mission, I shall wire as already agreed. Arrived well. JK. His passport also posed a problem. Renewed just prior to the previous trip, it was good for another two years. Yet, was now covered with visas of the ten countries he had just been through. This was sure to catch the attention of English customs officials. Of how he and John Devoy resolved this problem, Kenny wrote only, The difficulty was overcome through a ruse as simple as the one through which I succeeded in preserving the German pass. He sailed again on November the 14th, 1914, on the St. Paul, arriving in Liverpool. He was met with an unexpected check. Congratulating himself on having solved the dilemma posed by the passport, he stood with his hands in his pockets, jingling the coins there, only to realise suddenly, with horror, that he still had on him a collection of coins, one from each country he had just visited, which he had saved as souvenirs. Quick thinking and some fast talking 
along with official-looking papers, stumped the customs official, who eventually let Kenny pass. A463NY, AJ9, Marconi, Dublin, November 28, 1914. LCO, Grogan, 104 West, 48, New York. Arrived well, Kenny, 11.45 p.m. In Dublin, Tom Clark and the other leaders were surprised that John Kenny had been allowed past Liverpool. Over the next few days, Kenny met at the Irish Volunteers headquarters in Kildare Street. Almost all the men, then active in Dublin, Clark and MacDermott, expected that the British would soon start trying to enforce conscription, starting with wholesale arrests of all the IRB leaders, came up with a second and a third line of command. John Kenny was to bring these lists to John Devoy, but Sean MacDermott was worried that Kenny would be searched when leaving the country. Instead, the lists were sent with a father, Liam O'Donnell. Kenny memorised a list of names and addresses of a few trusted people in England with whom messengers could communicate if unable to reach Ireland. Kenny met at the headquarters with Professor McNeil, the O'Rahilly, Dermot Lynch and Bulmer Hobson, turning over £3,000 sterling to the O'Rahilly and receiving a receipt from McNeil. McNeil also gave him receipts for money brought previously by other messengers, which they could not risk sending through the mail. It was decided that all money, whether for the IRB or the Irish Volunteers, be sent to McNeil, since IRB money was liable to be confiscated. The newspapers Sinn Féin, Irish Freedom, Ireland and the Irish Worker had all been suppressed by the British government, along with the Gaelic American. The suggestion was made that the Zeppelins or aeroplane could be used to distribute bundles of leaflets in Ireland. In addition to Clark and MacDermott, Kenny spent his time with McDonough, McNeil and the O'Rahilly, Pierce, with whom he had a lot of interest in common, and Plunkett. For political reasons, he had to delay a meeting with James Connolly and Arthur Griffith. Eventually, Tom Clark had made an appointment for Kenny to meet Griffith the next afternoon. That night, Griffith's office was raided, his plant seized, and his newspaper suppressed. The day before John Kenny sailed, he received a message to meet James Connolly at his relative's house in Oxford Road at 1pm. After Kenny had waited some time, Maeve Kavanagh arrived with the news that Connolly was on the run, having been warned of a warrant for his arrest for an alleged treasonable speech in Liberty Hall the night before. Kenny also called on Countess Markovich, who was expected home shortly, but as Kenny had an appointment with Podrick Pierce at St. Endon's, he couldn't wait to see her. Meeting many people from all walks of life, Kenny remarked that contrary to the popular impression that certain political opinions prevail in certain circles exclusively, he found many separatists among the so-called garrison, many shonines among the working men, and so on. John Kenny met for the last time with Tom Clark and McDermott in Wynne's Hotel. That evening, just before Kenny left for the Liverpool boat, the O'Rahilly called to see him on a personal matter. That was the last Kenny was to see of the men of Easter week. John Kenny arrived back in New York via Liverpool on the 19th of December 1914. With the exception of Owen McNeil, the lives of virtually everyone Kenny met in Dublin during his second Clannagale mission would be forfeit in April 1916, Easter Rising, and its train of executions. He eulogised the men and women he met in Dublin 
on his second mission. They were the stuff of which is made the heroes and martyrs whose statues adorn our public squares and whose names are canonized in our churches. Yet they were condemned as little less than criminals by some who now profess that their greatest desire is to emulate them. They were derided as visionaries, yet Ireland is well on the way towards which they would have led. John Kenny lived out the rest of his life in New York City. He served as business manager of the Gaelic American until around 1921. He continued to remain active in public affairs and to publish his works in the Gaelic American. He died at the age of 77 on the 27th of December 1924 in St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan. His passing was mourned by the many Irish organisations in the city and a special mass was sponsored by the Common Naman, which wrote of him. The organisation feels that in the death of John Kenny they have lost one of their most valued friends and one of the sincerest, noblest and most intelligent friends of Ireland who was ever ready to assist wholeheartedly and unselfishly. A soul that never valued the material things of the world. It was on Good Friday morning All in the month of May A German ship was signaling Away out in the bay With 20,000 rifles All ready for to land But no answering signal Did come from The signal from the shore so Roger sadly said no comrades there to greet me alas they must be dead but I must do my duty I mean to land So in a small boat rode ashore To lonely Banner Strand The RIC were searching for Sir Roger Found him at McKenna's boat Said they you are our foe Said he I'm a Roger Casement And I've come to my native land To free my Irish countrymen
Mr. Roger Prisoner And they sailed for London town T'was in the tower they laid him A traitor to the crown Said he, I am no traitor trial he had to stand for bringing German rifles to 